There are lots of stories of underdogs that we admire. Uh, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, the story of Charlie Brown, uh, the story of Cinderella, all stories of underdogs that somehow find their way to a place of triumph or satisfaction. I don't know this by personal experience, but my parents tell me that from the time I was about six months of age until I was about five years old, every night um, I wanted only one story read to me. To their great consternation, the story did not change. It was the story of Fuss Bunny. Uh, Fuss Bunny was a little bunny rabbit who... Um, didn't like all the things that other rabbits like to eat. He didn't like lettuce and cabbage and clover and corn. And nobody liked Fuss Bunny. Uh, one day his mother, except his mother, one day his mother invited the lamb and the pig and other animals to a, to a meal and they all had lettuce and cabbage and clover and corn. And, and Fuss Bunny decided to try some lettuce and he liked it and cabbage, and he liked it, and clover, and he liked it, and corn, and he liked it. And everybody liked Fuss Bunny, except his mother. She loved Fuss Bunny. Oh, there it is. Now you can go into the psychological depths as to why I like that story every night for five years. But I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 10, and as you're opening your Bible there, understand where we're headed today. Broken people worship at the altar of success. Broken people worship at the altar of success, and in that emptiness, God reveals His love to us. Broken people worship at the altar of success, and guess what? We're all broken people. And in that emptiness, God reveals His love for us. So we're going to be introduced to a very broken person, an underdog, if you will, and we're going to see what happens to him. We'll begin with Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16, which doesn't introduce our character yet. It just kind of sets up the circumstances for this character's arrival. Would you stand for the reading of the Scripture this morning, Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. We stand uh, here quite commonly at East White Oak when we read the Scriptures, just as a way of saying, God, we're ready to hear what Your Word has to say to us. Judges 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the god of, of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, 
which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Please have a seat. Broken people worshiping at the altar of success in that emptiness, God reveals his love for us. This morning, we begin by looking at the pain of half-hearted repentance. This is a story we've seen before, hasn't it? In Judges chapter 2, in Judges chapter 6, there's a judge who comes to deliver, there's relief, and then in that success, people again turn away from God. They sin by worshiping other gods, and then there's an enemy that comes and oppresses them. In that oppression, they cry out to God for deliverance. God sends a judge to deliver them. This is the same song, many verses. When we make half-hearted repentance, we have discovered in this series of messages, we make a mess, don't we? When we have a half-hearted repentance, we make a mess. And there's a, lot of a, there's a lot of mess that's about to come in chapter 11. And in fact, after the first service, one fellow says, why doesn't the author say more about how this gets solved? And I said, because the whole point of this is to say, here's what life is like when you try to live it on your own. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the mess that we make when we try to live our lives apart from the true and living God. And so, in verse 6, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. They serve the Baals, that is the gods, and the female consorts, the Ashtaroth, of the gods around them, of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. Uh, there's this sense of, we're just going to cover our bases and we'll worship all the gods. And God had said to Israel, there's only one God. And him alone you shall serve. And they had forsaken that. Notice that it says that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That, what that means is in the opinion of the Lord. And that's the only opinion that matters, my friends. It doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter what you think as much as we may all think that our opinions are so valuable and worthy of distinction. The fact is, the only opinion that truly matters is God's, and they were not serving the Lord, even though they thought they were. They were just saying, we'll worship God and these other gods, but when you worship God and, you are not worshiping God. And so, his anger is kindled, 
And God sold them into the hand of their enemies, both to the west, the Philistines, and to the east, the Ammonites. And do you see the verbs that are used in verses 8 and 9? Israel was, verse 8, crushed and oppressed. Verse 9, Israel was severely distressed. Crushed, oppressed, distressed, severely. And so, in verse 10, they cry out to the Lord in repentance. We've sinned against you. We've forsaken our God and served the Baals. But God's not having it this time. Verses 11 through 14, he says, didn't I save you from many enemies many times? And still you forsake me and serve other gods. So I'm not going to save you anymore. It's a sarcasm on the part of God. He, of course, is going to save them, but in sarcasm, he says, go have those other gods save you, the gods you've chosen. Let's see how they'll do at this. And so in verse 15, the people of Israel respond to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. These are the words of repentance, aren't they? To say, we've sinned, an acknowledgement of our wrong. And do to us whatever seems good to you. That's a, a sense of abandoning our self-control, saying, God, you do whatever you wish. So that's good. That's a good part of this repentance in verse 15. But there's something that they add that makes you wonder about their repentance, doesn't it? Only please deliver us this day. What they're wanting is to be saved out of the problem they're in. Have you ever heard of the phrase foxhole prayers? Where you're saying, oh, I'm in trouble. God, save me. It's made from the a war situation where you're in a foxhole and the enemy's coming in strong and you'll, you make all kinds of promises to God if he'll save you from it. And there are times where foxhole prayers are genuine repentance and there are foxhole prayers where sometimes it's half-hearted. You're just wanting to be saved out of the trouble you're in. And here it's a little bit unknown, isn't it? Uh, are they sincerely repenting? Or do they just want out of the trouble they're in? Verse 16 is an interesting verse. It says they put away the foreign gods and they served the Lord. And it says, and he, that is God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, that can be understood in a couple of different ways. It could mean that God was drawn to pity. That is, that God could bear their misery no longer. That, for example, is how the New International Version translates it. But it could also mean when it says he became impatient over the misery of Israel that he's fed up with them. He's frustrated. He's exasperated at Israel. Uh, it literally says God's person was short because of the efforts of Israel. <laughs> so we're a bit uncertain here as to what God's thinking about it, whether he's longing to save or he's frustrated or perhaps even exasperated at Israel. Perhaps there's a little bit of both there, isn't there? As we look at this section in Judges 10, what are some ways that we can make this come alive in our own life situations? 
I think there's two ways in which we can mess up, one direction or another. One direction where we can mess up is we can underestimate the pain that our sin brings to God and others. We kind of minimize our own sins, don't we? We look at other people's sins, well, that's a big one. But mine, eh, it's not that big. We can underestimate the pain that our sin brings to God and to others. This section is reminding us of that. Don't underestimate the pain that your sin brings to others and to God. But on the other hand, there are folks who know that and they own how much their pain, their sin has brought pain to God and others, and they reach the conclusion, now I'm beyond saving, I've gone too far, now there's no hope for me. And for that, I would share this second application with you. Don't underestimate the power of God to save you. Don't underestimate the pain your sin brings to God, but don't underestimate the power of God to save you. Now, let's go to chapter 11, and we will see the problem of being born into a bad family. Verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite, here we are, we're introduced to this fellow Jephthah, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, (coughs) for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Here we have the problem of being born into a bad family. Some people are born into tragedy. Jephthah being born to a prostitute is something he could not help, and yet it affected his entire life. Uh, The chances are good that his father, by being a person who chased after other gods, just like chapter 10 said of the whole nation, that he too visited the Canaanite temple shrines where he engaged in the Canaanite temple practices, which involved the unfortunate alliance or union with a temple prostitute, and then she becomes pregnant and has a son named Jephthah. Jephthah born into this tragedy, and to make matters worse, verses 2 and 3 tell us that Jephthah has a pretty rotten family. His father's wife ends up having two sons, and as they grow up, they drive Jephthah out of the house, and they say to him, you will not have any inheritance. It was his right as the firstborn to have inheritance, but no inheritance for him. No family. You are the son of another woman. You are not part of our family. Step family situations are often extremely difficult and complex, aren't they? And this is Jephthah's world. And so, Jephthah ends up having no contact with his family. Verse 3, he flees from his brothers and lives in this land called Tob and 
It seemed better to Jephthah just to leave, didn't it? Move away. But in the search for meaningful human contact, Jephthah falls in with the wrong crowd. He gathers around, it calls them worthless fellows collecting around Jephthah, and he went out with them. That is, he hung out with them. He did the things they did. He thought the things they thought. He acted the way they acted. Tim Keller notes that Jephthah could be described at this point as an organized crime boss or, to make it more romantic, as a pirate. But that's, that's the world that Jephthah inhabits as a fellow who hangs around with worthless fellows because he himself feels worthless. He's a person who has no family because the family is so bad. Verses 4 through 11, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and the Ammonites made war against Israel. The elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Desperation has caused the nation to turn to Jephthah. It's not because he's now better in their eyes. They still think of him in exactly the same way as they thought of him when they drove him away from them. But it's because they're desperate. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And they want to get somebody who will win. They want a winner. And they think Jephthah is going to be their captain, their military leader who will bring them victory. And Jephthah understands this. That's why he goes through this negotiation, which is pretty shrewd and, uh, for Jephthah, isn't it? Uh, you make a bargain before you take the job. That's always how you negotiate, right? You don't take the job and then decide on the salary. You have your strongest position before you take the job. And, and that's what Jephthah does here. And Israel accepts the bargain. Yeah, we'll let you be our head if you deliver us from these enemies. What are some things we take away here? Uh, here's one. You cannot change the circumstances of your birth or the nature of your family. That's not something you can change. That doesn't mean, though, that you cannot glorify God with your life. There are people who feel completely entrapped by the circumstances of their past or even of their family's past. It's not true. There's hope. You can glorify God. You can rewrite the future of your family even though you have a broken past. Despite all of his troubles, 
that we have seen to this point and the troubles that are yet to come for Jephthah, I think that this lesson might be why Jephthah is included in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. What more shall I say, the author writes. I could tell you of Jephthah, telling the wonderful deeds of a faithful man. In what sense can we call him a man of faith? It is, no matter what your background is, you can glorify God. You can rewrite the future of your family even though you have a broken past. A second application is it's not wrong to bargain for a good deal, but it is wrong for the good deal to be more important to you than God. It's not wrong to bargain for a good deal, but it is wrong for the bargaining for that good deal to be more important to you than God is. And it turns out that that good deal is more important to Jephthah than God is. Now, in verses 12 through 28, we find out that the past is one huge debate. We won't read this section. I'll let you read that when you get home. But uh, the question that is being asked in verses 12 through 28 is, whose land is this? It's a question that plagued the the land and the peoples who lived in it at the time. We're talking 3,000 plus years ago. And it is a question that plagues this very same land up to the present time. Whose land is it? And the answer, of course, is that it's God's land and He gives it to whomever He chooses. <clears throat> but I want you to notice how in verses 12 and 13 it's described. In verse 12, Jephthah sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what have, do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? <laughs> Jephthah's saying it's his land. Look at how the king of the Ammonites responds in verse 13. The king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, go restore it peaceably. And I could do maps, but I don't have time for it, to show you this whole history of these, this debate over whose land is it. And Jephthah says it's mine, and the king of the Ammonites says it's mine, and it's neither. It's, it's God's land, isn't it? And basically, verses 12 through 18 is Jephthah telling the story of why he thinks it's his land. And he reaches the conclusion uh, about verse 27. I will note that verse 26 is an important verse because it sets a marker of chronology that is very helpful in positioning the judges in the chronology of the Bible. You may want to study that. The reason I no make note of it is that this is a real story that really happened. We're not talking about some fable. We're not talking about something that someone made up. This is something that actually happened, and there's a geographical and historical markers in the text that say this is a real story. It, it really happened. Jephthah's conclusion in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So, 
That's his conclusion in stating his case for why the land belongs to him. Uh, The king of Ammon will have nothing of it. Look at verse 28. The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. A couple of applications we might want to take away from this section. One is there will always be debates in the Middle East over the question, whose land is it? And the answer that's always a good answer is, it belongs to God, and He gives it to whomever He pleases. A second application, perhaps more important for our uh, situation, is that we kingdom build for ourselves when we start calling what is God's mine. Jephthah starts calling God's land, my land. You get in trouble with your own kingdom building when you do that because all of a sudden, Jephthah is starting to think that what I think is exactly what God thinks and here are God and me together looking at the rest of the world going, yeah, they're all wrong, aren't they? Be careful of that mindset, of that attitude. We kingdom build for ourselves when we start calling what is God's ours. And the blurring of the distinction between God and ourselves is a very dangerous thing. It's very easy for us to do, to start thinking that my thoughts are God's thoughts, and my ways are God's ways, and God's stuff is my stuff, and God's kingdom is my kingdom. We should be very careful about trying to place our position as God's position or calling what is God's ours. Very easily blurs into the building of our own kingdoms, and that's what happened here to Jephthah. Let's look now at the end of our text here in Judges 11, the poor decision that comes from the worship of success. In verses 29 to 32, Jephthah prepares for battle. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from Aurorer to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Jephthah prepares for battle. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and it's important for us to understand that when the Spirit of the Lord came on someone in the Old Testament, it was for a specific task. It doesn't mean that when that happens, everything the person thinks and does is a correct thought or a correct action. Oftentimes, it's wrong. They are having the Spirit of the Lord come upon them in order to be able to accomplish the specific task that God wants them to accomplish. And so, in chapter 3, Otniel, the Spirit of the Lord came on him. In chapter 6, Gideon, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. In chapter 14, the Spirit of the Lord will come on Samson. And in all those cases, you have uh, kind of a, well, I guess that's okay kind of thing in some instances. In other things, you go, wow, that just doesn't look right. 
And the reason it doesn't is that just because the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone does not necessarily mean that now what they're going to do is sinless. Jephthah makes a vow here, doesn't he? In verse 30, I'll offer whatever comes out of my house first after I'm victorious as a burnt offering. In verse 33, Jephthah's victory is described. And notice out of all the stuff in chapters 10 and 11, how briefly described the victory is. You would have thought that there would be great detail about that, and yet it's described in such a small way. The Lord gave them into his hand. And now we see Jephthah's loss, verse 34. Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and so he's going to offer as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of his house. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow." And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now, there are two main ways in which people have looked at this sorry situation. One is that Jephthah actually did offer his daughter as a human sacrifice. Uh, let's describe some of the ways in which that uh, looks like it's true from the text here. First, in verse 31, where he says, I will offer it up for a burnt offering, the word translated burnt offering always means burnt offering in the Old Testament. Secondly, Jephthah, as the son of a Canaanite, perhaps, prostitute, spent time with peoples on this other eastern side of the Jordan, was probably accustomed to human sacrifice. It certainly was not unknown in Israel's future history. And if Jephthah could lead in the killing of 42,000 fellow Israelites that we'll see next week, he could do this. The language here in verse 31 I'll offer it up as a burnt offering, is quite similar to the language of Genesis 22-2, where Abraham is called upon to offer up Isaac, uh, even though he doesn't end up offering him as a sacrifice. And then people will ask, why not use the language of dedication, much like Hannah did in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, uh, where Hannah offered her son up as a a dedication to the Lord, not as a human sacrifice. If uh, it wasn't about uh, human sacrifice, why does he use that language? So those are all reasons why you might think of it as a real human sacrifice. Um, 
There are others who suggest that what happens here is that Jephthah is uh, dedicating his daughter for a lifetime of service in the tabernacle of the Lord. Uh, And here are some reasons for thinking of it that way. Jephthah was too acquainted with the law of Moses to be ignorant of God's condemnation of human sacrifice. God condemns it all over the law of Moses. It's not right. It's not good. You don't do it. And Jephthah, in verses 12 through 28, actually tells this long history uh, of, of how the land belongs to Israel, and in that process, he reveals that he knows the law of Moses. So how could he not, if he knows all of those details, how could he not know the details about not offering human sacrifice? A second question is, why does he appear in Hebrews 11 if this actually happened? Uh, If his daughter were killed, why is there this emphasis on her virginity in verses 37 to 39? We have... um, this idea of leaving her alone. And and I don't know that we can fully be aware in 21st century uh, West just how significantly bad a moment it is for you not to have any generations that follow after you in your line. For Jephthah, this is a horror that would actually be worse than human sacrifice. And so there is that... uh, that idea. There were women at this time who did, in fact, give their lives to serving the Lord at the tabernacle. Uh, That's described in 1 Samuel 2, 22 and Exodus 38, 8. Another way that we can think of this in verse 31 is when it says, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. The next word, and, could also be translated or. It shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And then verse 40, where it says these daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah. The word lament could mean to talk to the daughter of Jephthah. In other words, they went up year by year to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to talk with her and to uh, go over once again the horrible circumstances that led to the situation that she's in. Uh, My own view is uh, that it may be that Jephthah initially intended to sacrifice whatever animal came out of his house, and that when his daughter and only child came out first, that that shifted the nature of the sacrifice from killing her to his family line being killed forever. Um, Leviticus 27 actually provides for this sort of thing, that when there is something that is to be utterly and completely devoted to God, there is a provision for redemption, for redeeming that. So, for example, the redemption of the firstborn child, it belongs to the Lord, but you can redeem it. One question that we might ask in all of this debate is uh, the silence in the text from God on this matter. Why is there no description of what God thinks about it? Well, first of all, this is more a description of human kingdom building than it is about God's character. This is just describing how bad down the rabbit hole Jephthah goes in the building of his own kingdom. 
And most vows, frankly, most vows before God are about human kingdom building. That's the nature of foxhole prayers. And they're almost always wrong. Oh Lord, I will do such and so if you, and it's all about yourself and your kingdom. Now there are some vows that are about God's glory and the worship of His holy name. They can be right. There's no obligation to take a vow, but once taken, God's clear demand is that the vow be kept. Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23, Ecclesiastes 5 all say that. But God had already made a provision for redemption in Leviticus 27, in Exodus 13, in Numbers 18, that when something was dedicated to be the Lord's, you could redeem it. Jesus' human parents, Mary and Joseph, made such a redemption in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. Read it, how they paid the redemption price for Jesus. So, what do we take away from this whole passage? First, our words matter. We should be more careful with them, shouldn't we? We live in an age when words just come flying in very dogmatic fashion on all kinds of subjects. I've yet to meet a person who's not an expert on COVID. And Proverbs chapter 10 says, when words are many, sin is not absent. Words matter. We should be more careful with them. And vows, of course, are particularly important. We should not vow something that we don't intend to fulfill. Perhaps most important of all, the false god of sexual freedom that we in the West have embraced creates family complications that we cannot imagine. Jephthah's father's Canaanite compromises were likely common all throughout Israel. There were probably lots of little Jephthahs running around. One important way that this abuse of freedom injures others is that it creates people like Jephthah who think that they are losers. And they can be looked down upon by others as losers, even though there is nothing that they have done to get that label. God loves broken people. The false God of success, I want to talk about for a moment. Have you ever worshipped at that altar? Worshipped that God? The false God of achievement, of success? Many of you that are in your late 20s and 30s are, without your realizing it, worshipping at that altar. It's a season of life where it's easy to worship at that altar. It would be well for you to talk to some folks that are in their 70s and 80s 
who will tell you what a false god that is. This false god of success demands strange sacrifices if you want to worship him. Jephthah worshiped at the false god of success, and that false god demanded a strange sacrifice. What made it worse in Jephthah's case and what makes it worse in our case is when we bring the true God of the universe into this false worship. It is bargaining with God in order to get what you want so that your kingdom advances. How weird is that? And that's what Jephthah did, bargaining with the true God of the universe while worshiping at the false God of success in order to build his own kingdom. It leads to disaster. What are your prayers like? Are they things like, I will worship you, just give me X, Y, and Z? Or are you offering a prayer like this? No matter what, God, I will worship you. You are my God. You know, we say around here that our focus is that we are seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. Did you know that that's the only way out of those false gods? But it is definitely the way out. It's the way out, the worship of the true and living God. When we make half-hearted repentance, we make a mess. But God loves broken people. And you know what? That's the only kind that there are here in this room or online. <laughs> it's the only kind there are. God loves broken people, and He sent His Son, Jesus, to be the redemption price to pay, up, pay our debt that we owed. We were condemned to certain eternal death, and Jesus rescued us by His death at the cross. There is a way out. And this morning, while we've looked at the story of an underdog, a broken person, who's worshiping at the altar of success, I want to ask you, in your own emptiness, will you allow God to reveal His love to you in the person of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you love broken people. And we're all broken. Some of us started out life like Jephthah with a whole bunch of bad things marked against us that weren't even our fault. Born into brokenness. And we've faced a lifetime of trouble because of it. And we've even thrown in with some worthless fellows from time to time in order to have the kind of human contact that we long for. We've kind of dashed about for all kinds of things that can fill the emptiness in our hearts. Lord, help us to see how wrong that path is. Others have been born into situations where they feel like, hey, I got it all together and they are the most blind of all, Lord. 
they don't even know how broken they are. Would you, in this moment, reveal our utter bankruptcy spiritually and our need of how broken we are and how that can only be satisfied not in the building of our own kingdoms, not in false worship of the God of success, but in Jesus Christ. O oh Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that anyone here in this room who's never put their faith in Jesus would do so right now. That they'd say, Lord, I, I'm broken by the things that people have done that have created this circumstance in my life, but I'm also broken by my own sin, and I repent of it, not in a foxhole way, but I genuinely embrace the fact that I have violated your holiness, and I need redeemed. I need a Savior, and I believe right now in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to forgive me of my sin, taking my punishment, taking my place, the sacrifice that sets me free, I believe in Him. I believe He rose from the dead, and so I know that I will be able to enjoy fellowship and life with Him forever. O oh Lord, Would you help us all to avoid that false idol of success? Especially, Lord, where it can so easily blend into thinking that we are doing your work when what we're really trying to do is advance your kingdom. Help us. We're doing your work when really what we're trying to do is advance our own kingdoms. Lord, would you help us to distinguish the two? so that we would seek you and your kingdom, that we would pray that your will would be done, your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.